I want to give you um, a little sneak peek into what we're thinking about the fall, but we as a, as a team have decided that we're going to two services in the fall. And so as you, as you notice, uh, as, we, as we round into May, some of our students leave, we start to, start to decrease in numbers through the summer, but as we re-enter into the fall, we'll be back believing we'll be back at the numbers that we were throughout the spring, and that's right at the, the max of this room as far as the amount of chairs that we can put in here, especially in our child care and in this room. And so we are moving towards two services. Why do we do that? There was, there was a simultaneous yes and a uh in the room. I, I can feel like those who don't like change, you're like, oh, no, no, I've got this seat reserved, and I like the people who sit around me. Don't do this to me, Pastor. And then the, the people in the other, the, the, the extroverted change people are like, yeah, paint the room, knock down walls, more services. I could feel both energy in the room. But the reason that we do this is not for personality. And it's not for um, our, own, our own promotion as a church. It's that we could provide more spaces for new faces. All right? We want to see more opportunities for new faces in this community to hear about Jesus. And there's, there's times when people visit, and if the parking lot is packed and the room is packed, for some people it feels like there's not a place for me. And we don't ever want anybody to walk into this place and, and feel like there's not a place for them. And so we are strategizing and planning on how we can um, pull it off staff-wise and volunteer-wise to create more spaces for new faces. Amen? So can you believe for that? That's not happening. For those of you who don't like change, you got three more months of no change. So just start going. You know, that means you really have to enjoy the people around you for the next three months. Um, but let's anticipate by prayer and faith that God wants to bring new life uh, to this community, new faces that are going to hear about Jesus. Amen? Okay. I want to tell you a little story as we enter into this, um, this passage of Scripture this morning, and we're a little bit behind, and th- that's not good for a preacher like me, because I'm always a little bit behind anyway, so we're a lot behind. But um, a former church that I was involved in, was experiencing a tremendous amount of growth as a church. And not just numerically, they were, they were growing so fast that they were thinking about multiple services. They were visiting other, other congregations in the United States and around the world to try to, to, to discern, God, what, are, what is the next steps for who we are as a, as a people? And they were experiencing the power of God. There were miracles happening in their services. And people were getting prophetic words and all kinds of, of spiritual manifestations of God's presence and His gifts um, were moving among them. How many of you know that the giftings of God, the callings of God, it says, are irrevocable? So in the midst of whatever's happening in church, God is always about saving people's lives, powerfully ministering to them, no matter what's happening under the surface. Well, in the middle of this growth uh, of this church, in the, in the middle of all these amazing, wonderful things happening in the Spirit there was something very corrosive that was happening underneath. There was rampant sexual sin that was happening within the body of Christ, in, in, in that church, starting with the pastor and his wife. And there were multiple affairs that were happening just with the two of them. It was crazy, crazy bad. And multiple people that were kind of brought into this, this web of immorality, and it centered around sexual brokenness. It centered around pride. 
uh, arrogance about what was happening in the external, but what was not being attended to in the, in- the internal of the soul of the church that, that, that started with the pastor. Now, this is, there's no confession coming from me. I just want you to know, for, as it got quiet, <laughs> there's nothing happening that I know of in that, that realm. But I can say this, I, I didn't plan this, but I can say as I was saying, I, I, I can say it's important that you pray for your leaders because we're human. And as, as, as intent and as purposeful as I am to walk holy and devoted to the Lord, I am a human. And there's temptation that's before me, there's temptation before our staff uh, on a variety of levels. And by the grace of God, as Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So you pray grace on me. You pray grace for my family and our staff's family and our leaders' families so that those kind of things don't happen in our church. Um, But it was happening in this church. And the uh, the whole thing, the whole enterprise of church fell apart. And at that moment of revelation, that church planted a lot of house churches because a lot of people left and started meeting at home. Because they were disillusioned by what, um, what seemed to be something that was really awesome happening that was in the, on the inside was not awesome at all. Now, can I say that there was awesome things happening? Can I give you a commentary? God was awesomely doing things in people's lives, and there was brokenness all at the same time. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, and in the context of this passage of Scripture, is talking about a church just like that. The Corinthian church was a messed up church. If you read the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, you realize that Paul, you know, he he has a lot to write about. He has a lot of different issues that he's addressing that were not in good shape. In the midst of, not uh, in the midst of, unbelievably wonderful gifts being used and manifested in the midst of the church, in the midst of people getting saved, in the midst of people being healed, in the midst of people hearing prophetic words that were edifying and encouraging them, in the midst of all of the Spirit's work, in the context of what Paul is going to address is a need for the love of God, there was problems. Real people struggling to make sense of what it looks like to be spiritual in the truest sense of God's nature and His Word. We want to be worshiping together as a church, walking in the Spirit, by the Spirit, and empowered with His love. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Read with me in 1 Corinthians. We're going to jump right to the text, and we'll, we'll, um, we'll come back and... Um, talk about a couple of things, but I actually want to start in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 31, because he takes the end of chapter 12 where he's talking about the spiritual gifts and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and why we are to eagerly desire them because they are meant to build up the church, verse 7 of chapter 12, and edify the church, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, that there is a need for the Spirit of God to be alive and ministering through us, but he said, this is why. Um, in verse, verse 12, he says, So you should earnestly desire the, more helpful, the most helpful gifts, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Or in the NIV it says, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. And he goes on and he speaks 
um, in these terms. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all God's secret plans, and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So let's stop there for a second. He's in the midst of confronting the church about over-spiritualizing the gifts. And we've hammered this point. And specifically, you, you will see through the thread of 12 through 14, this overemphasis on the gift of tongues or, or speaking in the tongues of angels. Again, I don't believe he's saying that it is not a gift or that it's an ungodly gift. He's just saying it's out of place and it's out of emphasis in this church. And this church has has, um, from, from the context of this, this letter, has come to the place where they feel like that these spiritual gifts, the gift of knowledge, the gift of revelation, the gift of prophetic word, the gift of tongues, has revealed that they are in this very spiritual connection with God, that they have arrived at maturity because they are experiencing or using these gifts. And Paul is furious because as he looks at the landscape of the church, he sees it marred and mocked, 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 marked, not mocked, marked by a lack of genuine Christ-like love. So that people are being spiritual, but they're self-consumed. They're self-promoting. They're, they are bra- proud and boastful, as we'll look at later in not embodying the the true Spirit of Christ. He wants us to have that gospel-centered love in us so that we can then use the gifts appropriately, manifest the presence of Spirit in His nature so that people are truly transformed and changed. Not setting up a house of cards that will fall at some point, but establishing a firm foundation that will last, as he describes, love will forever. This this concept of love or this definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is the same um, form of love that we see in John 3.16. For God so loved, agape, the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever would believe in Him, who Christ is and what Christ has done, should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the love of God, a selfless, sacrificial, others-focused love that's demonstrated for us through Christ on the cross. That's the same love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that if we have have the ability to speak with the tongues of angels, but have not love, we are like a clanging gong or a crashing cymbal. They would have been very aware of that last phrase in the context of this letter because that that cymbal... Imagery is very, um, very present in the pagan cult worship of the day. So the, they, would, they would clang symbols as a form of worship. And he's saying, if you can do these things, that, if you can speak in the tongues of angels, as you say, but you don't have it birthed from a place of love that I'm going to describe later, you're just like the pagan worship that you just came out of. It's a pretty, pretty searing indictment from Paul. 
You look spiritual. You look like a Christian spiritual church, but you're really just like the pagan cult that you came out of. If you can, and then he goes on and he talks about, he, uses, he, he draws out three charismatic gifts that he just described in chapter 12. So he brings out uh, faith and, uh, what do we got there? Prophecy and knowledge. If you can prophesy and you can possess all knowledge and you can have faith that can move mountains. In a sense, he's saying if you could have all of these spiritual manifestations and be the holy man or woman that can do it all in the spirit, you're all kinds of supernatural. But it's not based out of a love for others. It's worthless to God. And then he goes on and he really nails it home. And he talks about self-sacrifice. Talking about if you give all your possessions, if you make yourself poor so that the poor can be helped, if you take the place of the poor by giving all that you have to serve the poor, or if you, you offer your body in various ways of sacrifice, but you have not love. You've gained nothing. In a sense, almost saying that we can be so self-consumed. Isn't it ironic that we can be so self-consumed in the pursuit of our spirituality where we want others to look at us and be so proud of how we're spiritual that we can actually go all the way in our unloveliness, our self-consumedness, by sacrificing everything for the poor and giving our and, and, and putting our bodies in harm way, and it's still selfish. It's actually the most high form of self-conceit that we could get to that place and think it's love when God knows it's not love. It's about you. So Paul is going after it. And, and believe me, let's stop here. Before we enter into four through seven, go ahead and check your heart rate. Fill your palms, because he's coming after us. But he's coming after us. I wanted to say this before we even get into it. I can tell you that when I read 1 Corinthians 13, if I'm not prayerful in the Spirit, I'm like, oh, gosh, I can't do this. I just broke, I, I, just, I just did that. Oh, I just did that just a minute ago. No, I was like that last week. Oh, I, Lord, do I have any love in me? But Paul, and I believe Jesus through Paul, is not trying to do this with the church. He's setting before the church who they are. Listen to me. It's not about what you need to do. It's about who you are. Because if we are truly spiritual people, remember this chapter is in the context of us being spiritual beings, that being reborn of God through our faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God living in us, Jesus' Spirit being with us and walking in us and living through us, that if Paul says, this is what love looks like, what is he saying? This is what you are. This is how you can act. So today, as we begin to read, if you're like, oh man, this is so convicting because this is not who I am, then be convicted, but don't be condemned. Be challenged. Yeah, you might not be living in the way that God has called you to live, but don't let the devil beat you down and say, see, you can't do it because Paul is saying, yes, you can. 
Because the Spirit of God lives in you. And you can today choose to love in the way that Paul is describing. That's why when we meet somebody who meets Jesus for the first time, oftentimes they're the most loving people you've ever met. How is that? They just came out of probably whatever is not lovely, and Jesus sets them free. And then all of a sudden you look in their eyes and you're like, wow, I want to be like you. You've been a Christian for 10 minutes, and you're awesome. How is that? Because Jesus is in them. And probably they haven't had a chance to sin yet. So all of a sudden, it's unadulterated Jesus. It's like, that's pure love right there. You can be walking in that kind of love right now as you listen to the Word of God. So would you just, before we even get to 4-7, to seven, because this is, again, this is where He just starts coming after us and just describing who He is or who He's not. Would you just say, God, you can do this in me right now. So Spirit of God, would you allow me, and I'm praying this for me, you pray for you. Lord, would you allow, even as I'm talking, for me to hear what you are wanting to say to Sean to me about how I can be like you, how you can be loved through me. I receive everything you want to communicate to me in Jesus' name. So let's look at 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. So let's go back. Love is patient, and love is kind. I believe that he starts off here by talking about the forbearance of love and the kindness or the mercy of love because this is the very nature of how God treats us. He is patient with us. What's the scripture say? God is patient with us uh, and he's holding back judgment, Hebrews talks about, so that we can come to know him. He is forbearing in our sinfulness, in our fallenness, in our rebellion so that we might have an opportunity to experience the forgiveness and the salvation of Jesus. He is patient with us, and He's kind. Over and over and over and over again, when we do not deserve kindness, God shows us kindness. When we don't deserve mercy, another form of kindness, God shows us mercy. This is love. Love is by its very nature, the gospel lived out through us to other people. Patience in their sinfulness and kindness in mercy when they don't deserve it. Man, it is so easy to understand whether or not we are loving or have experienced love in the area of marriage. All people in the room who are married say amen. All of, the, all of you that are not married say Whew. Yeah, because it is just convicting all the time in how I am or am not like love. But I can say this, when it comes to patience and kindness, if we're keeping score in my marriage, I lose. Because my wife 
is very patient and kind with me. And I'm not just saying this. Sometimes she thinks, Sean, you're just saying that to make me look good. And I am not. I mean, she's human. She's got her faults. I'll talk about those later. <laughs> just kidding. I won't. Um, but she really is kind and patient. For those of you who know Laura, you've experienced this in, in your own life. But she really is patient with me. There are times when I, if I, I know this is hard to believe, where I am not the easiest person to be around. And I can elicit within Laura a little bit, if she was allowed herself to, I could be somewhat frustrating to her and offensive. And oftentimes, I will get this from Laura when I'm just either defensive or some of the things we're going to learn about in love in just a second that I'm, I'm not or shouldn't be or whatever that, that Corinthians talks about. She just looks at me, and she swallows, and she smiles, and she gives some kind, kind, not some kind, but kind response. That does two things to me. Do you know what that does to me? That makes me more angry <laughs> that she has the ability, the audacity to be loving, but it's also so savvy to me that she would be able to be patient. This is usually after the fact. This is about five or ten minutes afterwards. I'm thinking, you know what? That was really nice of her. <laughs> she was really kind in a loving way to be merciful to me and patient. God is wanting us to be patient and kind as He is with us. Love does not envy or boast. It is not proud. This, this word in the Greek, envy, is kind of like the word rivalry, actually. And we see why Paul is using this if we read the letter, because at the beginning of Corinthians, he talks about how there are factions in the church and how there are um, uh, people who are supporting one leader and people who are supporting another leader, and there is... There is comparison throughout the church on who is more spiritual and less spiritual. And he's saying this is not love. For us to look and compare with one another and envy what another person has, but it's more in line with love for us to rejoice. Remember 1 Corinthians 12? And celebrate the differences that we have because your differences make me strong. Your strengths and my weaknesses bless me my weaknesses, my strengths bless you, and where I am weak, if you can cover me, there's grace, and there's life, and there's, there's kingdom community that happens. But if we are comparing and competing with one another, then we are a broken, divided fellowship. I remember, I've told you this before, but I remember being on outreach with a, a friend of mine who was a much better evangelist than I was, and it made me mad. Because he knew how to talk to people about Jesus, and I wanted to be like him until God convicted me that if, there, if I was like him, then what would, I, what, would, what would be missing if I weren't me? Right? What would be missing if you weren't you? And what would be missing if your neighbor right now sitting next to you wasn't them? The very giftings or creation of Christ is for his purposes and for his glory. Love is not envious or jealous. Um. President Truman and Reagan popularized this phrase that I think was much earlier than, than their using of it, but it, this, this quote, it's amazing how much can be accomplished if no one cares who gets the credit. When we're not jealous or envious, we don't care who gets the credit, and we can all be moving forward 
to see the works of God done through a heart that loves others like Christ loves us. Boasting, behaving as a braggart or a a windbag, always talking about my ideas and my ways and my accomplishments and my knowledge. Were we able to get that video to work? No? Okay, okay, well. When you have a chance, just for fun, look up Brian Regan. For those of you who don't know, he's a funny comedian. Just look up the me monster. I, I would try to imitate it, but I would do it not do it justice. But we have all been around these people that, that in, in, it's sad when it's in the church, that cannot stop talking about themselves. That find every opportunity to change the conversation from whatever you're talking about to how they have, it, have, have experienced that or done that or what they have done or the new thought that they have. My, 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 my. And Paul's saying that boasting and bragging about yourself is the antithesis of love because its focus is on you instead of the other and or as we were praying this morning, in all of the context of these, these love verses, the focus ultimately is off of Jesus. When we come to Jesus and we, we acknowledge what Jesus has done for us and how we have been formed by Jesus, how we've been created by Jesus, how we have been allowed to be gifted by Jesus so that we can serve others, when it's about Jesus, it's not really about boasting about ourselves. So if you find yourself needing to talk about yourself a lot, Paul is saying there might be a lack of love, a true love, that's being birthed in your heart. When we are consumed with agape love, we are far less concerned about ourselves and far more concerned about God receiving glory and others being edified and built up. Pride, kind of the heart of all of this, literally means puffed up. It's an illusion. He uses it. Uh, this, this phrase in chapter 8, verse 1, where he says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love is not about me, it's about we. It's about you being built up. Love is not rude, behaving shamefully or disgracefully. Um, again, the church is he's talking to us has all kinds of indications of rudeness from the sexual immorality that's in the church to what we talked about about the Lord's Supper where the poor were being overlooked. Uh, Love is not demanding one's way or self-seeking. We were reminded when we think about this this aspect because this is kind of a definition of love. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many. If we are others-seeking instead of self-seeking, love is having fruit in our life. And I want to just make a note about this, because in our culture, church culture today, this can be a really slippery slope. But the end-all of our spiritual existence, and I think Paul's addressing this here, is not about us finding our all-in-all in God alone. So it's not about, the end of our pursuit is not about if I experience the presence of God and I become intimate with the Lord. All of that is very important, but if this intimacy with Jesus 
This experiencing God's presence in, in our personal time with the Lord or in a corporate experience, this worship encounter that we strive for, that we want to, to experience, if it is not a birthing in us the result of loving other people and serving and looking out for other people, then Paul is saying it's not birthed in love. Our end result is not our own spiritual satisfaction. As a matter of fact, our own spiritual satisfaction should have as its end result that others around me are experiencing Christ. That others around me are being saved. That others around me are being encouraged and edified. And that's what he's going to talk about in chapter 14. That my life in Christ, my intimacy with Christ, my experiencing the presence of God in Christ has a result and it is so that you can be impacted. Keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. No, not irritable or easily angered. Oh, wow. Oh, I just always get stuck on that one. Why am I like this? That's what I wrote down. Why am I like this? This is my journal. Okay, everybody enter my private quiet time right now. Oh, Lord, why am I like this? <laughs> when I am like this, it's because Jesus has gotten out of focus and I'm in the center. When I am easily angered or defensive, it means that I'm asking, why would you say that about me? Why would you do that to me? Why would you forget me? Why would you overlook me? Where, where, where is me in this situation? Do you not know me? Do you not care about me? That's why I get easily angered, because Laura is not caring about me. She's not thinking about me. My kids are not doing stuff for me the way that I want them to go. My staff is not considering me, right? And so I get irritated. I get angry. If Jesus is in the center, I'm much more likely to overlook, to keep no record of wrongs to continually forgive and believe the best. Okay, wow, time's gone. Okay. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Let me go back to keep no record of wrongs for a second. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that um, keeping no record of wrongs, I, somebody said this one time, and I thought this was very interesting. We're in the middle of a, of a forgiveness time with a group of people, and the person said, I can forgive you, but I'm not sure how long it will take me to forget what you have done. I can forgive you, but in a sense what they're saying, but I'm not sure I can forget it. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. I think Paul is saying that forgiveness is so powerful, they were actually able to not keep a record of wrongs. Meaning that that person is off the hook even if they do it 70 more times. That I'm not bringing back up, going back to marriage here or relationships, I'm not bringing back up how you've done that for the 50th time. Well, how do you know? Because I'm keeping, I mean, not really, but maybe 49, 40, I'm not sure, no record here. It's been a lot. 
I mean, I think, I've forgotten it, but I remember, not really. Ah, I've not forgotten what you've done. It's amazing when you're around people, and I can tell you that's those closest to me, and again, my wife is really great about this. She has what I call um, amnesia. She's able to forget things that she shouldn't forget. Now, when it's with me, I love it that she has amnesia. When it's about you guys, I want her to remember. <laughs> don't you remember how they did that? Oh, they're great. I don't, they didn't mean it. They're wonderful. No, quit being so godly. But that's what Jesus is talking about. We can have the power. I really want to impart faith to you. You can have the power to not just forgive, but to keep no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through all circumstances. I'm going to fast forward really quickly to what the end says. The end basically says that all of these gifts, they're going to pass away. All of the things of this present circumstance that, is, that are important, the gifts are important to edify the church and build up the church, but the only thing that remains to the end of time is this love that's born of God. And therefore, since love is eternal and not temporal, and when we see Jesus face to face, the consummation of all that we've been living for and believing in is going to happen. And when we see Jesus, all of this is going to fade away. And when we're reunited with Christ, love is the eternal reward and the eternal presence of God forevermore. So we want to give ourselves to love. We want to give ourselves to pursuing love. So, Ben, would you come up here? Because I want us to respond in just a couple of minutes. Oftentimes when we read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and that's where I want you to focus here for a second, people will say, wow, this really sounds like Jesus. I actually had one of my most awesome revelations of God when that truth hit me. This is who Jesus is. So you could actually read 1 Corinthians 4, 7 like this. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Jesus does not demand his own way. He's not irritable. He keeps no record of being wronged. He does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Jesus never gives up. He never loses faith. He's always hopeful, and he endures through every circumstance. Isn't that awesome? That this is the Jesus who loves you. And if we just stopped there, we could have a wonderful devotional time this morning. But Paul is not stopping there. Paul is saying the Jesus in you is. And so he's really saying that by the power of Christ, Jesus, it's not that we go, wow, Jesus was really awesome. I can never be like him, but wow, he's beautiful. That would be good. We should start from that place of worship. Jesus is beautiful. He is wonderful and He is all these things. But Paul is saying, Jesus in you is just like Jesus. So we actually can say this. Remember your name? Do you know your name? Put your name. Don't listen to me. I'm going to say Sean, but it's you put your name in this. We really could say this. Sean is patient and kind. Sean is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Sean does not demand his own way. He's not irritable. 
Sean keeps no record of wrong, being wrong. Sean does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Sean never gives up. Sean never loses faith. Sean is always hopeful. Sean endures through all circumstances with the love of God. So, close your eyes with me. Say, God, where are you speaking to me in relation to love? I just put my name in this passage of Scripture, and I am stirred to be like you. I don't want to be in the center of the universe. You can, you can say your prayers however you want to, but this might be a prayer that you would pray. Lord, I don't want to be the center of the universe. I don't want to be easily angered. I don't want to keep a record of wrongs. I don't want to boast and be proud. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be me, 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 me. I don't even want to be deceived that I'm all spiritual and can do all these spiritually gifted things, but it really be motivated out of people looking at me and worshiping me. Lord, I just don't want that because I know it's not your nature. I want eyes off of me and onto you. But Lord, this specific place or these specific places in 4 through 7 are hard for me. This might be a prayer of yours. Lord, help me with this aspect of love. Or it might be that God is putting people in your mind's eye. There's people, maybe it's your deepest relationships, maybe it's co-workers, maybe it's neighbors. You can love a lot of people like this, but you can't love them this way. Love is not just about our neighbors. Love is also about our enemies or those that we are having a hard time with. Maybe God's speaking to you about being Jesus to them. So let's just take a moment and let the Holy Spirit speak to us this morning. What is God saying? Sometimes when the Spirit of God convicts me of sin or sinfulness or he convicts me uh, with a longing to be like him in a way that I'm not seeing. Sometimes both of those things at the same time. Um, There's something so uh, eager in my heart to to respond to the Lord uh, that I I need help. I, I, I ask, I'll call a friend and say, hey, I feel like God's really speaking this to me. Would you pray? So if you feel the strength of God's conviction in one of these areas or many of these areas and you're wanting to get out of the center so that Jesus can be the center in your life so that we as a church can be more loving. And I I want agreement for prayer in that. Just lift your hand where you are. I'm going to pray over you. I'm lifting my hand too so it's hard to be the preacher the Lord convicts me too much Lord we want to be loving I get excited Lord that you want to live through me 
in these ways. So Lord, as people are raising their hand right now, as you reach down from heaven, Spirit of God, as you breathe life into those who are reaching out to you and saying, God, I want you to be the center. I pray this prayer. Fill each of us with our hands raised and our hearts yearning with more of your love. Lord, your love is, maybe a different way of praying, your love is there. It's not more. Fill us with a, a, a desire to live that out. Lord, give us the encouragement we need. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, may we not be defensive with you, Lord, but may we be open to how you speak to us. May you motivate us, Lord, through your words and your life in us to love in a way that we have not been loving for a while. And Lord, in these specific areas that each one of us in different ways, different ones have different areas that you're pinpointing, God, I just want to speak faith. Faith that Jesus in you can love in that way. Whatever your block is, Jesus can unblock you. And he can unblock you today. So I want to encourage you as I pray for you that whatever area seems like the most difficult to be loving in, I want to encourage you that you can love that way today. So if there's a person attached to that difficult place, I want to encourage you by faith that you can love that person today in a way that you have not been able to love them. It could be forgiveness. It could be wiping the slate clean and and forgetting their offense, not keeping a record of offense. It could be allowing God to love you so much that you don't have to have human praise to keep on doing what you're doing, but God's affirmation would be enough. It could be putting compassion in your heart for people that it's hard to have compassion for because Jesus has that kind of compassion and love. Whatever it is, receive it. Receive it for yourself and receive it for another. Remember, God's love is for another, ultimately. It's for those around you.